listening to Nightlight. Hello and welcome to part one of a special Easter series of Nightlights that I pray you'll find very feeding and inspirational and give you some precious insights into the deeper meanings of the various events that we read about in all four Gospels pertaining to the last couple of days of Jesus' earthly life. These three shows will be in a similar format as our Christmas special for 2016, where I'll play you the story from my reading of the King James Bible, and that will be followed by the commentary on that story by J.C. Ryle. J.C. Ryle was a contemporary of Charles Spurgeon, and his expositions on the four Gospels are considered among the finest and most insightful ever written. On the first show, we'll be reading from Luke chapter 22, which covers the betrayal by Judas, the Last Supper, and the Lord's agony in Gethsemane. And then part two and three will cover the trial of Jesus, his crucifixion, and of course, his resurrection. So without further ado, let's begin part one of this international edition of the Nightlight Show, number, oh, let's see, 145, Meditations on the Easter Story by J.C. Ryle. You're listening to an international edition of Nightlight, shining God's love light to the world. Luke chapter 22, verses 1 through 13. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew nigh, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Then entered Satan into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, being of the number of the twelve. And he went his way and communed with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him unto them. And they were glad and covenanted to give him money. And he promised and sought opportunity to betray him unto them in the absence of the multitude. Then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare us the Passover, that we may eat. And they said unto him, Where wilt thou that we prepare? And he said unto them, Behold, when ye are entered into the city, there shall a man meet you bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house where he entereth in, and he shall say unto the goodman of the house, The master saith unto thee, Where is the guest chamber where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples? And he shall show you a large upper room furnished. There make ready. And they went and found as he had said unto them, and they made ready the Passover. The chapter which opens with these verses begins Luke's account of our Lord's sufferings and death. No part of the Gospels is so important as this. The death of Christ was the life of the world. No part of our Lord's history is so fully given by all the Gospel writers as this. Only two of them describe the circumstances of Christ's birth. All four dwell minutely on Christ's death. And of all the four, no one supplies us with such full and interesting details as Luke. We see firstly in these verses that high offices in the church do not preserve the holders of them from great blindness and sin. We read that the chief priests and scribes sought how they might kill Jesus. 
The first step in putting Christ to death was taken by the religious leaders of the Jewish nation. The very men who ought to have welcomed the Messiah were the men who conspired to kill him. The very pastors who ought to have rejoiced at the appearing of the Lamb of God had the chief hand in slaying him. They sat in Moses' seat. They claimed to be guides of the blind and lights of those who were in darkness. Romans 2.19 They belonged to the tribe of Levi. They were, most of them, in direct succession and descent from Aaron. Yet they were the very men who crucified the Lord of glory. With all their boasted knowledge, they were far more ignorant than the few Galilean fishermen who followed Christ. Let us beware of attaching an excessive importance to ministers of religion because of their office. Ordination and office confer no exemption from error. The greatest heresies have been sown and the greatest practical abuses introduced into the church by ordained men. Respect is undoubtedly due to high official position. Order and discipline ought not to be forgotten. The teaching and counsel of regularly appointed teachers ought not to be lightly refused. But there are limits beyond which we must not go. We must never allow the blind to lead us into the ditch. We must never allow modern chief priests and scribes to make us crucify Christ afresh. We must test all teachers by the unerring rule of the Word of God. It matters little who says a thing in religion, but it matters greatly what it is that is said. Is it scriptural? Is it true? This is the only question. To the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Isaiah 8.20 We see secondly in these verses how far men may fall after making a high profession. We read that the second step toward our Lord's crucifixion was the treachery of one of the twelve apostles. Then entered Satan into Judas Iscariot, being of the number of the twelve. These words are peculiarly dreadful. To be tempted by Satan is bad enough. To be sifted, buffeted, led captive by him is truly terrible. But when Satan enters into a man and dwells in him, the man becomes indeed a child of hell. Judas Iscariot ought to be a standing beacon to the Church of Christ. This man, be it remembered, was one of our Lord's chosen apostles. He followed our Lord during the whole course of his ministry. He forsook all for Christ's sake. He heard Christ preach and saw Christ's miracles. He preached himself. He spoke like the other apostles. There was nothing about him to distinguish him from Peter, James, and John. He was never suspected of being unsound at heart. And yet this man turns out at length a hypocrite, betrays his master, 
helps his enemies to deliver him up to death and dies himself the son of perdition john 17:12 these are fearful things but they are true let the recollection of judas iscariot constrain every professing christian to pray much for humility let us often say search me o god and know my heart try me and know my thoughts psalm 139 verse 23 at best we have but a faint conception of the deceitfulness of our hearts the lengths to which men may go in religion and yet be without grace is far greater than we suppose We see thirdly in these verses the enormous power of the love of money. We're told that when Judas went to the chief priests and offered to betray his master, they agreed to give him money. That little sentence reveals the secret of this wretched man's fall. He was fond of money. He had doubtless heard our Lord's solemn warning take heed and beware of covetousness luke 12:15 but he had either forgotten it or given it no heed covetousness was the rock on which he made shipwreck covetousness was the ruin of his soul we need not wonder that paul called the love of money the root of all evil 1 timothy 6:10 the history of the church is full of mournful proofs that it is one of the choicest weapons of Satan for corrupting and spoiling professors of religion. Gehazi, Ananias, and Sapira are names which naturally occur to our minds. But of all proofs, there is none so melancholy as the one before us. For money, a chosen apostle, sold the best and most loving of all masters. For money, Judas Iscariot betrayed Christ. Let us watch and pray against the love of money. It is a subtle disease, and often far nearer to us than we suppose. A poor man is just as liable to it as a rich man. It is possible to love money without having it and it is possible to have it without loving it. Let us be content with such things as we have. Hebrews 13.5 We never know what we might do if we became suddenly rich. It is a striking fact that there is only one prayer in all the book of Proverbs and that one of the three petitions in that prayer is the wise request, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Proverbs 30, 8. We see, lastly, in these verses, the close connection between our Lord Jesus Christ's death and the feast of the Passover. Four times we are reminded here that the evening before his crucifixion was the time of the great Jewish feast. It was 
the day when the Passover lamb must be killed. We cannot doubt that the time of our Lord's crucifixion was overruled by God. His perfect wisdom and controlling power arranged that the Lamb of God should die at the very time when the Passover lamb was being slain. The death of Christ was the fulfillment of the Passover. It was the true sacrifice to which every Passover lamb had been pointing for 1,500 years. What the death of the lamb had been to Israel in Egypt, his death was to be to sinners all over the world. The safety which the blood of the Passover lamb had provided for Israel, his blood was to provide far more abundantly for all that believed in him. Let us never forget the sacrificial character of Christ's death. Let us reject with abhorrence the modern notion that it was nothing more than a mighty instance of self-sacrifice and self-denial. It was this, no doubt, but it was something far higher, deeper, and more important than this. It was a propitiation for the sins of the world. It was an atonement for man's transgression. It was the killing of the true Passover lamb, through whose death destruction is warded off from sinners believing on him. Christ, our Passover lamb, says Paul, is sacrificed for us. 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Let us grasp that truth firmly and never let it go. Inspiring you to draw closer to God. You're listening to Nightlight. Chapter 22, verse 14 through 23. And when the hour was come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. And he said unto them, With desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say unto you, I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup and gave thanks, and said, Take this, and divide it among yourselves. For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine, until the kingdom of God shall come. And he took bread, and gave thanks, and brake it, and gave unto them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. Likewise also the cup, after supper, saying, This cup, is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. But behold, the hand of him that betrayeth me is with me on the table. And truly the Son of Man goeth as it was determined, but woe unto that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to inquire among themselves which of them it was that should do this thing. These verses contain Luke's account of the institution of the Lord's Supper. It is a passage which every true Christian will always read with deep interest. How astonishing it seems 
that an ordinance so beautifully simple at its first appointment should have been obscured and mystified by man's inventions. What a painful proof it is of human corruption that some of the bitterest controversies which have disturbed the church have been concerning the table of the Lord. Great indeed is the ingenuity of man in perverting God's gifts. The ordinance that should have been for his wealth is too often made an occasion of falling. In appointing the Lord's Supper, Jesus distinctly tells his disciples that they were to do what they did in remembrance of him. In one word, the Lord's Supper is not a sacrifice. It is eminently a commemorative ordinance. The bread that the believer eats at the Lord's table is intended to remind him of Christ's body, given to death on the cross for his sins. The wine that he drinks is intended to remind him of Christ's blood, shed to make atonement for his transgressions. The whole ordinance was meant to keep fresh in his memory the sacrifice of Christ on the cross and the satisfaction which that sacrifice made for the sin of the world. The two elements of bread and wine were intended to preach Christ crucified as our substitute under lively emblems. They were to be a visible sermon appealing to the believer's senses and teaching the old foundation truth of the gospel that Christ's death on the cross is the life of man's soul. We shall do well to keep steadily in view this simple view of the Lord's Supper, that a special blessing is attached to a worthy use of it, as well as the worthy use of every ordinance appointed by Christ, there is of course no doubt. But that there is any other means by which Christians can eat Christ's body and drink Christ's blood, excepting by faith, we must always steadily deny. He that comes to the Lord's table with faith in Christ may confidently expect to have his faith increased by receiving the bread and wine but he that comes without faith has no right to expect a blessing. Empty he comes to the ordinance, and empty he will go away. The less mystery and obscurity we attach to the Lord's Supper, the better will it be for our souls. We should reject with abhorrence the unscriptural notion that there is any oblation or sacrifice in it, that the substance of the bread and wine is at all changed, or that the mere formal act of receiving the sacrament can do any good to the soul. We should cling firmly to the great principle laid down at its institution that it is eminently a commemorative ordinance, and that the reception of it without faith and a thankful remembrance of Christ's death can do us no good. Let us notice, lastly, who were the communicants at the first appointment of the Lord's Supper. They were not all holy. They were not all believers. Luke informs us that the traitor Judas Iscariot was one of them. The words of our Lord admit of no other fair interpretation. Behold, he says, the hand of him that betrays me. 
is with me on the table. The lesson of these words is deeply important. They show us that we must not regard all communicants as true believers and sincere servants of Christ. The evil and good will be found side by side even at the Lord's Supper. No discipline can possibly prevent it. They show us furthermore that it is foolish to stay away from the Lord's Supper because some communicants are unconverted or to leave a church because some of its members are unsound. The wheat and the tares will grow together until the harvest. Our Lord himself tolerated a Judas at the first communion that ever took place. The servant of God must not pretend to be more exclusive than his master. Let him see to his own heart and leave others to answer for themselves to God. And now, if we are not communicants, let us ask ourselves as we leave this passage, why are we not? What satisfactory reason can we possibly give for neglecting a plain command of Christ? May we never rest until we've looked this inquiry in the face. If we are communicants, let us take heed that we receive the sacrament worthily. The sacraments have a wholesome effect and operation in only those who worthily receive them. Let us often inquire whether we repent and believe and strive to live holy lives. So living, we need not be afraid to eat of that bread and drink of that cup which the Lord has commanded to be received. Like a candle in the night, it's nightlight. Luke chapter 22, verses 24 through 30. And there was also a strife among them, which of them should be accounted the greatest. And he said unto them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors. But ye shall not be so. But he that is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he that is chief as he that doth serve. For whether is greater he that sitteth at meat, or he that serveth, is not he that sitteth at meat? But I am among you as he that serveth. Ye are they which have continued with me in my temptations, and I appoint unto you a kingdom, as my Father hath appointed unto me, that ye may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Let us observe in this passage how firmly pride and love of preeminence can stick to the hearts of Christian men. We are told that there was a dispute among the disciples as to which of them should be considered the greatest. The strife was one which had been rebuked by our Lord on a former occasion. The ordinance which the disciples had just been receiving and the circumstances under which they were assembled made the strife peculiarly inappropriate. And yet, at this very season, the last quiet time they could spend with their master before his death, the little flock begins a dispute as to who should be the greatest. Such is the heart of man, ever weak, ever deceitful, 
ever ready, even at its best times, to turn aside to what is evil. The sin before us is a very old one. Ambition, self-esteem and self-conceit lie deep at the bottom of all men's hearts and often in the hearts where they are least suspected. Thousands imagine that they are humble, who cannot bear to see an equal more honored and favored than themselves. Few indeed can be found who rejoice heartily in a neighbor's promotion over their own heads. The quantity of envy and jealousy in the world is a glaring proof of the prevalence of pride. Men would not envy a brother's advancement if they had not a secret thought that their own merit was greater than his. Let us live on guard against this sore disease if we may make any profession of serving Christ. The harm that it has done the Church of Christ is far beyond calculation. Let us learn to take pleasure in the prosperity of others and to be content with the lowest place for ourselves. The rule given to the Philippians should be often before our eyes. In lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. The example of John the Baptist is a bright instance of the Spirit at which we should aim. He said of our Lord, He must increase, but I must decrease. Philippians 2.3 and John 3.30 Let us observe secondly in this passage the striking account which our Lord gives of true Christian greatness. He tells his disciples that the worldly standard of greatness was the exercise of lordship and authority. But you, he says, shall not be so. He that is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he that is chief, as he that serves. And then he enforces this principle by the mighty fact of his own example. I am among you as he that serves usefulness in the world and church, a humble readiness to do anything and put our hands to any good work, a cheerful willingness to fill any post, however lowly, and discharge any office, however unpleasant, if we can only promote happiness and holiness on earth. These are the true tests of Christian greatness. The hero in Christ's army is not the man who has rank and title and dignity and chariots and horsemen and fifty men to run before him. It is the man who looks not on his own things, but the things of others. It is the man who is kind to all, tender to all, thoughtful for all, with a hand to help all and a heart to feel for all. It is the man who spends and is spent to make the vice and misery of the world less, to bind up the brokenhearted, to befriend the friendless, to cheer the sorrowful, to enlighten the ignorant, and to raise the poor. This is the truly great man in the eyes of God. The world may ridicule his labors and deny the sincerity of his motives, but while the world is sneering, God is pleased. This is the man who is walking most closely in the steps of Christ. Let us follow after greatness of this sort 
if we desire to prove ourselves Christ's servants. Let us not be content with clear head knowledge and loud lip profession and keen insight into controversy and fervent zeal for the interests of our own party. Let us see that we minister to the needs of a sin-burdened world and do good to bodies and souls. Blessed be God! The greatness which Christ commended is within the reach of all. All have not learning or gifts or money, but all can minister to the happiness of those around them by passive or by active graces. All can be useful and all can be kind. There is a grand reality in constant kindness. It makes the men of the world think. Let us observe thirdly in this passage our Lord's gracious commendation to his disciples. He said to them, You have remained true to me in my time of trial. There's something very striking in these words of praise. We know the weakness and infirmity of our Lord's disciples during the whole period of his earthly ministry. We find him frequently reproving their ignorance and lack of faith. He knew full well that within a few hours they were all going to forsake him. But here we find him graciously dwelling on one good point in their conduct and holding it up to the perpetual notice of his church. They had been faithful to their master, notwithstanding all their faults. Their hearts had been right, whatever had been their mistakes. They had clung to him in the day of his humiliation, when the great and noble were against him. They had remained true to him in his time of trial. Let us rest our souls on the comfortable thought that the mind of Christ is always the same. If we are true believers, let us know that he looks at our graces more than at our faults, that he pities our infirmities, and that he will not deal with us according to our sins. Never had a master such poor, weak servants as believers are to Christ, but never had servants such a compassionate, and tender master as Christ is to believers. Surely we cannot love him too well. We may come short in many things. We may fail in knowledge and courage and faith and patience. We may stumble many times. But one thing let us always do. Let us love the Lord Jesus with heart and soul and mind and strength. Whatever others do, let us remain true to him and cleave to him with purpose of heart. Happy is he who can say with Peter, however humbled and ashamed, Lord, you know that I love you. John 21, 15. Let us observe lastly what a glorious promise our Lord holds out to his faithful disciples. He says, I appoint unto you a kingdom 
as my Father has appointed unto me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. These words were our Lord's parting legacy to his little flock. He knew that in a few hours his ministry among them would be ended. He winds it up by a wonderful declaration of good things laid up in store for them. We may not perhaps see the full meaning of every part of the promise. Enough for us to know that our Lord promised his eleven faithful ones glory, honor, and rewards far exceeding anything they had done for him. They had gone a little way with him, like Barzillai with David, and done a little for him. He assures them that they shall have in another world a recompense worthy of a king. Let us leave the whole passage with the cheering thought that the wages which Christ will give to his believing people will be far out of proportion to anything they have done for him. Their tears will be found in his bottle. Their least desires to do good will be found recorded. Their weakest efforts to glorify him will be found written in his book of remembrance. Not a cup of cold water shall miss its reward. Like a candle in the night, it's nightlight. Luke chapter 22, verses 31 through 38. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. And he said unto him, Lord, I am ready to go with thee both into prison and to death. And he said, I tell thee, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day before that thou shalt thrice deny that thou knowest me. And he said unto them, When I sent you without purse and scrip and shoes, lacked ye anything? And they said, Nothing. Then said he unto them, But now he that hath a purse, let him take it, and likewise his scrip. And he that hath no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say unto you, that this that is written must yet be accomplished in me. And he was reckoned among the transgressors, for the things concerning me have an end. And they said, Lord, behold, here are two swords. And he said unto them, It is enough. We learn from these verses what a fearful enemy the devil is to believers. We read that the Lord said, Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. He was near Christ's flock, though they saw him not. He was longing to accomplish their ruin, though they knew it not. The wolf does not crave the blood of the lamb more than the devil desires the destruction of souls. The personality, activity, and power of the devil are not sufficiently thought of by Christians. 
This is he who brought sin into the world at the beginning by tempting Eve. This is he who is described in the book of Job as going to and fro in the earth and walking up and down in it. This is he whom our Lord calls the prince of this world, a murderer and a liar. This is he whom Peter compares to a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. This is he whom John speaks of as the accuser of the brethren. This is he who is ever working evil in the churches of Christ, catching away good seed from the hearts of hearers, sowing tares amid the wheat, stirring up persecutions, suggesting false doctrines and fermenting divisions. The world is a snare to the believer. The flesh is a burden and a clog. But there is no enemy so dangerous as that restless, invisible, experienced enemy, the devil. If we believe the Bible, let us not be ashamed to believe that there is a devil. It is a dreadful proof of the hardness and blindness of unconverted men that they can jest and speak lightly of Satan. If we profess to have any real religion, let us be on our guard against the devil's devices. The enemy who overthrew David and Peter and assaulted Christ himself is not an enemy to be despised. He is very subtle. He has studied the heart of man for 6,000 years. He can approach us under the garb of an angel of light. We have need to watch and pray and put on the whole armor of God. It is a blessed promise that if we resist him, he will flee from us. It is still a more blessed thought that when the Lord comes, he will bruise Satan under our feet and bind him in chains. James 4, 7 and Romans 16, 20. We learn thirdly from these verses the duty incumbent on all believers who receive special mercies from Christ. We read that our Lord said to Peter, So, when you have repented and turned to me again, strengthen and build up your brothers. It is one of God's peculiar attributes that he can bring good out of evil. He can cause the weakness and infirmities of some members of his church to work together for the benefit of the whole body of his people. He can make the fall of a disciple the means of fitting him to be the strengthener and upholder of others. Have we ever fallen and by Christ's mercy been raised to newness of life? then surely we are just the men who ought to deal gently with our brethren. We should tell them from our own experience what an evil and bitter thing is sin. We should caution them against trifling with temptation. We should warn them against pride and presumption and neglect of prayer. We should tell them of Christ's grace and compassion if they have fallen. Above all, we should deal with them humbly and meekly remembering what we ourselves have gone through. Well would it be for the Church of Christ if Christians were more ready to do good works of this kind. There are only too many believers who in discussion add nothing to their brethren. 
They seem to have no savior to tell of, no story of grace to report. They chill the hearts of those they meet rather than warm them. They weaken rather than strengthen. These things ought not so to be. The words of the apostle ought to sink down into our minds. Having received mercy, we faint not. We believe and therefore we speak. 2 Corinthians 4, 1 and verse 13. We learn lastly from these verses that the servant of Christ ought to use all reasonable means in doing his master's work. We read that our Lord said to his disciples, He that has a purse, let him take it, and likewise his bag. And he that has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. It is safest to take these remarkable words in the proverbial sense. They apply to the whole period of time between our Lord's first and second advents. Until our Lord comes again, believers are to make a diligent use of all the faculties which God has implanted in them. They are not to expect miracles to be worked in order to save them trouble. They are not to expect bread to fall into their mouths if they will not work for it. They are not to expect difficulties to be surmounted and enemies to be overcome if they will not wrestle and struggle and take pains. They are to remember that it is the hand of the diligent which makes rich. Proverbs 10.4 We shall do well to lay to heart our Lord's words in this place and to act habitually on the principle which they contain. Let us labor and toil and give and speak and act and write for Christ as if all depended on our exertions. And let us never forget that success depends entirely on God's blessing. To expect success by our own purse and sword is pride and self-righteousness. But to expect success without the purse and sword is presumption and fanaticism. Let us do as Jacob did when he met his brother Esau. He used all innocent means to conciliate and appease him. But when he had done all, he spent all night in prayer. Genesis 32 verses 1 through 24. verse 39 through 46. And he came out and went, as he was wont, to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples also followed him. And when he was at the place, he said unto them, Pray that ye enter not into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast, and kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, 
if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose up from prayer and was come to his disciples, he found them sleeping for sorrow, and said unto them, Why sleep ye? Rise and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. The verses before us contain Luke's account of our Lord's agony in the garden. It is a passage of scripture which we should always approach with peculiar reverence. The history which it records is one of the deep things of God. While we read it, the words of Exodus should come across our minds. Put off your shoes from off your feet. The place whereon you stand is holy ground. Exodus 3.5 We see firstly in this passage an example of what believers ought to do in time of trouble. The great head of the church himself supplies the pattern. We are told that when he came to the Mount of Olives the night before he was crucified, he knelt down and prayed. It is a striking fact that both the Old and New Testaments give one and the same receipt for bearing trouble. What does the book of Psalms say? Call upon me in the time of trouble, I will deliver you. Psalm 50, 15. What does the Apostle James say? Is any afflicted? Let him pray. James 5.13 Prayer is the remedy which Jacob used when he feared his brother Esau. Prayer is the remedy which Job used when property and children were suddenly taken from him. Prayer is the remedy which Hezekiah used when Sennacherib's threatening letter arrived. And prayer is the remedy which the Son of God himself was not ashamed to use in the days of his flesh. In the hour of his mysterious agony, he prayed. Let us take care that we use our master's remedy if we want comfort in affliction. Whatever other means of relief we use, let us pray. The first friend we should turn to ought to be God. The first message we should send ought to be to the throne of grace. No depression of spirits must prevent us. No crushing weight of sorrow must make us speechless. It is a prime device of Satan to supply the afflicted man with false reasons for keeping silence before God. Let us beware of the temptation to brood sullenly over our wounds. If we can say nothing else, we can say, I am oppressed, undertake for me. Isaiah 38, 14. We see secondly in these verses what kind of prayers a believer ought to make to God in time of trouble. Once more, the Lord Jesus himself affords a model to his people. We are told that he said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He who spoke these words, we must remember, had two distinct natures in one person. 
he had a human will as well as a divine. When he said, not my will be done, he meant that will which he had as a man with a body, flesh and blood like our own. The language used by our blessed master in this place shows exactly what should be the spirit of a believer's prayer in his distress. Like Jesus, he should tell his desires openly to his heavenly Father and spread his wishes unreservedly before him. But like Jesus, he should do it all with an entire submission of will to the will of God. He should never forget that there may be wise and good reasons for his affliction. He should carefully qualify every petition for the removal of crosses with the saving clause, if you are willing. He should wind up all with the meek confession, not my will, but yours be done. Submission of will like this one is one of the brightest graces which can adorn the Christian character. It is one which a child of God ought to aim at in everything if he desires to be like Christ. But at no time is such submission of will so needful as in the day of sorrow, and in nothing does it shine so brightly as in a believer's prayers for relief. He who can say from his heart when a bitter cup is before him, not my will, but yours be done, has reached a high position in the school of God. We see thirdly in these verses an example of the exceeding guilt and sinfulness of sin. We are meant to learn this in Christ's agony and bloody sweat and all the mysterious distress of body and mind which the passage describes. The lesson at first sight may not be clear to a careless reader of the Bible, but the lesson is there. How can we account for the deep agony which our Lord underwent in the garden? What reason can we assign for the intense suffering, both mental and bodily, which he manifestly endured? There's only one satisfactory answer. It was caused by the burden of a world's imputed sin, which then began to press upon him in a peculiar manner. He had undertaken to be sin for us, to be made a curse for us, and to allow our iniquities to be laid on himself. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Galatians 3.13, Isaiah 53.6. It was the enormous weight of these iniquities which made him suffer agony. It was the sense of a world's guilt pressing him down, which made even the eternal Son of God sweat great drops of blood and called from him strong crying and tears. The cause of Christ's agony was man's sin. Hebrews 5, 7 We must beware jealously of the modern notion that our blessed Lord's life and death 
were nothing more than a great example of self-sacrifice. Such a notion throws darkness and confusion over the whole gospel. It dishonors the Lord Jesus and represents him as less resigned in the day of death than many a modern martyr. We must cling firmly to the old doctrine that Christ was bearing our sins, both in the garden and on the cross. No other doctrine can ever explain the passage before us or satisfy the conscience of guilty man. Would we see the sinfulness of sin in its true colors? Would we learn to hate sin with a godly hatred? Would we know something of the intense misery of souls in hell? Would we understand something of the unspeakable love of Christ? Would we comprehend Christ's ability to sympathize with those that are in trouble? Then let the agony in the garden come often into our minds. The depth of that agony may give us some idea of our debt to Christ. We see, lastly, in these verses, an example of the feebleness of the best of saints. We're told that while our Lord was in agony, his disciples fell asleep. In spite of a plain injunction to pray and a plain warning against temptation, the flesh overcame the spirit. While Christ was sweating great drops of blood, his apostles slept. Passages like these are very instructive. We ought to thank God that they've been written for our learning. They're meant to teach us humility. When apostles can behave in this way, the Christian who thinks he stands should take heed lest he fall. They are meant to reconcile believers to death and make them long for that glorious body which they will have when Christ returns. Then, and not until then, shall we be able to wait upon God without bodily weariness and to serve him day and night in his temple. Well, that's all we have time for on part one of this special Easter edition of Nightlight, enjoying these commentaries on the Easter story by J.C. Ryle. Thanks so much to Michael Fogarty, who composed and produced all the beautiful music that complemented the readings. Part two will follow shortly, and we'll pick up where we left off in Luke chapter 22, with the arrest of Jesus, followed, of course, by his trial and crucifixion. And then in part three, 
his resurrection. God bless you and I pray that these programs will help you have a truly happy and meaningful Easter. Please do share this show with others through Facebook, WhatsApp, Twitter, email, however you want to do it. And I'll be back with you again soon. Bye-bye.